This begins a four-part series in the New Testament book of Titus. And I'd uh, like to direct your attention this morning to the first four verses. We'll usually take a little bit more of a jump than that, a little bigger bite to get through the book in four weeks. But I want us to focus on these first four verses because they are so foundational. It's in your bulletin, the 1984 uh, edition, uh, older edition of New International Version, but please follow along in whatever translation you have at hand. Hear then God's word through his apostle. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Thus far in God's word, let's turn to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, the one who stands before these, your people, this morning is so aware of his own feet of clay. And he knows that these, your people, have feet of clay too. Why would you make us your people? Only your grace. But you have. And that's a privilege to be part of your family. And that you would instruct our hearts by your spirit through your word. Oh, do business with our souls, we pray this day. That we might marvel at who you are. And what you've done. And what you've called us to be. And I make my prayer in the matchless name of King Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So, my friend asked, how long have you known Jesus? I wasn't expecting a question like that. No one had asked me that kind of question before. Oh, I mumbled, I guess about 12 years. <laughs> then why, he asked, has it made so little difference in your life? Well, heavy. I'd uh, like to say that I appreciated his comments. Uh, at the moment I, that he said them, I kind of didn't. I admit I was in my early 20s and was at the Naval Academy, and my churchianity, if you will, didn't cut it. I was convicted of my double life, one for church on Sunday and the other out with the boys, if you will, as a midshipman at the United States Naval Academy during the week. I had other fish to fry, as it were. I was ashamed, and I later drew aside alone to read my Bible, reflect and pray. And this is one of the passages, these four verses that we look at today, that God directed me to that day. And in it, we learn about the believer's confidence and transformation were taught the foundational principle that God's redemptive truth in Christ 
leads his people to godliness. And it does so through those two motifs, confidence and transformation. Let's look at just those two points in turn. First, God's truth gives us confidence of eternal life. Verse 2, the hope of eternal life. Now, we use the word hope, Greek elpida. Yeah, 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 what's hope? Well, hope. I, I hope that my team wins the Super Bowl. <laughs> Mine didn't. <laughs> Badly lost. <laughs> what I'd hope that they would win. We hope we'll have uh, <clears throat> a pleasant winter. We hope that uh, the child will be a boy or a girl. We hope that. That's not how the Bible uses the word hope. Listen, when Paul talks about it, when the author of Hebrews talks about it, uh, the author of Hebrews says, uh, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. And then the author goes on to talk about our hope. It's founded upon him. Paul, you know, in chapter 5 of the, his letter to the Roman believers, he hadn't been there to that church yet, but he's writing to them as brothers and sisters, talks about hope. And he speaks about that hope as something firm and secure. And later on, in one of his other epistles, Paul talks about uh, we have an anchor, rather Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, we have an anchor, firm and secure. Our hope is in him. The hope of eternal life. You see, God's truth is based upon his promise in eternity past. Verse 2 goes on and says that he promised it before the beginning of time. And God knew what he was doing. Nothing you do can surprise him or shock him into letting you go if you're his child. His love is realistic doesn't paper over our faults. He cares about who we are becoming because he saved us to become that. But our hope is based upon a truth, the truth of God that is promised by him from before the foundation of the earth. And Paul unpacks that in the beautiful first chapter of his letter to the Ephesian believers. He talks about how God before the beginning of time appointed us, predestined us, chose us in Christ to be his own. You see, there was, there was a betrothal long before the world began. And the father betrothed a bride to his son and determined that he would send his spirit to work in the lives of those he had betrothed and bring them to him. And that he would send his son to redeem them. And so, you see, when you're Christ... You are secure. You are caught in that giant bear hug of the Trinity, of the Father, for the Son, by the Spirit's work in our hearts, sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And God has revealed this truth through the course of redemptive history from a promise that was from eternity past now revealed through the course of human history. Verse 3, at his appointed season, he brought his word to light at his appointed season. The Bible is an unfolding meta-narrative, a story, a great story, an epic drama of God coming, 
in the person of his son to seek and to save that which was lost. You may think today, you may be here this morning and think, I have sinned so much, God could never care enough for me to make me his child. I have news for you, good news, that there is no sin that you have done if you were still here this morning that precludes you from the kingdom of God. Jesus, or rather the apostle Paul who writes this speaks in another place. It says Christ died for the ungodly and he says uh, that he, he did so for sinners of whom I am chief. And we need to understand what all Paul had done. Oh, I know what I've done. You know what you've done. Paul knew what he'd done. And by the way, so did everybody else. <laughs> he pursued, hunted down, and put to death believers. He had persecuted the church of God. And yet God showed him mercy. The only unforgivable sin is the, the final turning of our backs upon the cross of Calvary. Upon the invitation of the gospel. The only unforgivable sin. Because apart from that, if we taste of the Spirit in the sense of understanding the gospel and turn our back on it, there is no other way to be saved than the gospel we've turned our back on. And unless we turn to it, that is final. There can be no, no salvation other than through the cross. The Apostolic preaching of the gospel, verse 3, through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To the Thessalonians, Paul would say, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. You know, there were thousands, thousands, tens of thousands of Palestinians who had heard Jesus, watched him, observed his life, witnessed his miracles. Oh, he'd fed the multitudes in the wilderness. Not only that, he'd still the storm. Oh, but he'd also cast out demons. He'd heal the sick. He'd raise the dead. And there were a lot of people. So I remember when. Oh yeah, I remember that too. And their stories would circulate. And sometimes our memories kind of get a little, mine do at least, get a little addled. And some, so some of those stories weren't quite right. And some were more correct. And then they gave their explanation. And some had listened carefully. And they were pretty close. And others weren't close at all. Interpreting the meaning of what Jesus had come to do. But God, Christ had taken care of that. He made a provision for that. Mark chapter 3 verse 14. We read that after praying all night. He called his disciples together. And out of them he chose twelve. That they might be with him. And we're told he called them apostles. Sent ones. That he might send them out to preach. Preach what? The gospel salvation in the Messiah who's come in Jesus Christ. In the upper room, Jesus says, I have much more to tell you, but you can't handle it now. He's out of time. What will happen? He's not out of time. He says, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter will come, whom the Father will send in my name. He said, he'll Bring everything to your remembrance that I've said to you. And he'll lead you into all truth. That's further revelation, understanding what God intends for us in Christ. And so our New Testament is the apostolic preaching of the cross gathered into one corpus. 
by the apostles and their amanuenses. We can talk about author of Hebrew, Hebrews and James and, and Jude as the half-brothers of our Lord, but all those were attested, Mark, Matthew, or Mark and Luke, but they were amanuenses of the Apostle Paul. So you have the acceptance of the body of apostles for the corpus which we have today, saying, yes, this represents the gospel. Jesus said to them, whosoever sins you remit or remitted. Whosoever sins you do not remit, they remain. That didn't have to do with priestly absolution at all. It had everything to do with proclaiming the way of salvation, and there's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way. And the Greek really should be translated both the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The early Christians, before they were called Christians in Antioch, before they were called that, they were called followers of the way. Jesus had pointed that out. You know, in Brazil years ago, a century ago, you had a lot of, uh, of intrepid explorers. In fact, the, one of them was Teddy Roosevelt after he'd been president. And uh, he was a hale and hearty guy, or thought he was, and, and uh, broke his health, really. Almost died. A lot of other explorers of that time did die. What happened? You get into that jungle, and you'd lose your way. So I just follow the river. <laughs> That's a maze. Those rivers, the tributaries of the Amazon jungle are a maze. Get lost, they never come out. So one of the things people learned they had to do was find someone who grew up there who knew it and could be a guide for them, a, uh, a, a Brazilian Indian. But how do you know which ones <laughs> that you can trust? Uh, because not all of them loved the outliers, the people who came from outlanders. Uh, and so you'd go to the provincial chief and say, can you vouch for one? And he would. He'd indicate one. And they'd take that scout or that, that uh, uh, pathfinder with them, a guide. And uh, those that did so and paid attention to him, came back safely. But it didn't do him any good, and sometimes it happened when they ignored their guide. What does he know? He's only an uneducated Indian, can't read or write. Those are the ones who got into trouble and often did not return. You see, we need to heed the warning of God's accredited spokesman. He's given us the gospel in the pages of the New Testament. The Old Testament days, God through Isaiah said, to the law and to the testimony, that is to the word of God, if they agree not according to this word, it's because there's no light of dawn in them. Hebrew word. No light of, not, not the beginning glimmer of light. We need to take heed. The Word of God tells us that when Christ came into the world, He lived a perfect life, and He did that to be Emmanuel, God with us, one with our humanity, but without sin. Virgin born. Miracle. Absolutely. The God who spoke the cosmos into being has no trouble doing that. He grew up and lived an absolutely innocent life and then laid down that life. The hands of wicked men. As God, the righteous Father, 
poured out his wrath and curse and fury against evil and sin. He hates evil. He's fully righteous, fully holy. He loves the good. And that which, that which destroys the good, he hates. God is angry with the wicked every day. Oh, it's an angry God. We don't have an angry Yes, we do. The Bible says so. But not at us. And not at those who are the objects of his mercy. And even in his mercy to all. Until the judgment day. But how is our sin going to be dealt with? Oh, Jesus said, as it were, let the fury of your wrath and your righteous judgment for Sam Larson, for, insert your name, fall upon me. And he did. And he bore it. And he died. And he was buried. And he was raised to life on the third day because we're told it's impossible for death to hold him. He ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of glory where he orchestrates history as he, Steve's right, he, builds his church. Oh, it doesn't look like it sometimes. But I teach church history, missions history, and I can go over with you if we ever have time and occasion and show you how just when it looked most dark for Christianity, time and again, King Jesus would break through despite the failures of his people. He lovingly is working through us. And he will do what he has promised. Well, we have confidence based on the hope of eternal life. But we also have confidence in order that this truth we have may transform us. You see, God's truth does transform us. We are no longer what we were, enemies of God, outliers, if you will, ourselves, but we're part of the family of faith. Verse 1, the faith of God's elect. Now that word faith can mean the act of believing. It doesn't mean that here. It's what we believe. It's the faith that we believe. It's the truth that God has given to us. That's what he's talking about in this context. In verse 4, he speaks to Titus who is my true son, he said, in our common faith. What is this family like to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 4.15? Paul says, in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. What? We have a heavenly father. That's right. Is Paul that? No, no, no. Paul didn't mean that. He meant, I'm the one who brought the gospel to you. Patiently brought you through that point where God regenerated you. And now you're his child too. And I mentored you. And, and I grieved for you. I bled for you inwardly as you struggled. I prayed for you. I was like a spiritual father for you. He's saying to the Corinthians. He says that to Timothy too. <laughs> he says it here to Titus. It's part of a family. That's what we do for one another. Galatians 6.10, Paul says, speaks, he says, As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. Paul uses the term household of faith and family of God. You know, I read uh, our 
book of church order from time to time. I prefer not to read it all that often. I'd rather read the Bible. <laughs> but one of the things that strikes me is apart from the word church itself, uh, the term most often used, it seems to me, uh, in the book of church order for the church, you think it might be family. Or you think it might be body of Christ. Or you think it might be the temple of the living God or something. It's court. 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 <laughs> well, I know that our book of church order is written by a lot of, uh, of godly lawyers. <laughs> Many of them were in the PCA. And I appreciate that. And there is a sense in which it's a court. But that's not mostly what we are. Oh, when they made a general assembly, that's as a court. Oh, that partly is that. Partly is that. We need to remember who we are. Christ community. Remember who you are. Here. God's family. Together, right here. You and I. We care for each other. And so when somebody hurts, the rest of us hurt. When somebody is uh, honored, the rest of us rejoice and share it. You see, in that family, God is both our heavenly Father and our Savior. Verse 4, God the Father. Verse 3, God our Savior. He's both. We'll come to Christ in a moment on those scores. But notice that God does not save us simply in our sin. He comes to us while we are in our sin. You don't make yourself better so that God may love you. That's a Muslim notion. It's a Hindu notion. It's a uh, it's even a Buddhist notion, but it's not a Christian notion, biblical notion. You can't make yourself better enough that God's going to love you. can't do it. He comes to us where we are, in our wretchedness, in our brokenness, in our stench. And now what he expects of us is honesty before him. Honesty before him. And he reaches down and saves us, not in our sin. He saves us out of our sin. You see, his intention isn't that we just be saved and live as we were before. His intention is that we be brought into his family, a family that's different, it's distinct. Romans 8.29 tells us, for those God foreknew, he also predestined, what? To be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. He wants to be the firstborn of many brothers. He will be the firstborn of many brothers. Brothers. By adoption. He's the true son. Our elder brother. So Paul later will say in the Romans. Beginning verses of chapter 12. I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God. That you present your bodies as living sacrifices. That's not a, in place of a, a bloody sacrifice. No, what this has to do is the peace offering, the fellowship offering, which involved the, the meal or, or uh, uh, grain offering, bread, and the drink offering, the wine, bread and wine. It was never presented except after and on the basis of a blood offering. And the peace offering reflected, not atonement that was done, it reflected fellowship with God Almighty, a holy God who's of purer eyes to, than to look on evil and can't abide with iniquity. We abide with him because of Jesus. 
I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable or spiritual service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, we're saved for a reason and for a purpose. It's not just to get out of hell free card that we carry through our lives. Jesus is God's anointed deliverer and he's our Savior. Verse 4, Christ Jesus, our Savior. The word Christ, his name. You shall call his name Jesus the angel announced, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus means Jehovah saves. He's Christ. He is the anointed, the Messiah, the Old Testament word, Hamashiach. The one that God's Spirit has come upon for that special purpose. And we're told here he's our Savior, the one who saves us. And in verse 4, the very next chapter, if we can sneak peek, and we'll talk about it more in two weeks, but... but uh, in chapter 2, verse 13, we read, uh, While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is also God. God and Savior. Some try to, to take, uh, oh, God, and then there's also our Savior, Jesus Christ. But the grammar won't let you do that. And go into that if you want me to talk to me afterwards, but I won't do that just now. The grammar requires it to be God and our Savior, that is, Jesus Christ. He saves us, you see, from the penalty of sin and into a restored relationship with him. So now grace and peace are our legacy. Verse 4, God's free gift, grace, unmerited favor is the basis. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, for it's by grace that you're saved, through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And we have peace with God as a result. Romans 5, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the peace there is not simply a truce an absence of hostilities breaking out overtly. While well, there's behind the scenes a little, a little leeriness and suspicion. No, this is the great Irene, uh, the counterpart of the Shalom of the Old Testament. This is a peace that means well-being. This is a peace that means everything's as it should be. But Paul, the world's not as it should be. It's fallen. When your people, when Christ's people go out into that world, they are often hated, and Jesus said we would be. Yes. And when Jesus said that in the upper room, in the world you will have tribulation, he promised it, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. He also had just said, peace I give you. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives do I give unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. And finally, grace and peace are our legacy. Christ-like godliness is then our goal. Verse 1, the truth that leads to godliness, says Paul. In the next chapter, just before the verse I read a moment ago, 
verse 13 of chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 before it say these. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Our lives are to be different. That's what we've been saved for. In 1 John, the epistle, chapter 3, begins with these words, Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it doesn't yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Then he goes on and says, Therefore, everyone who has this hope, confident expectation in Him, purifies himself even as he is pure. And um, in chapter 2 of that epistle, verses 3 through 6, we read these rather strong words. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. Oh, that's legalism. We're all grace here. We can live any way we want. It's always a grace. No, 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 no. Real grace transforms. It's not based on what we will be. It's not based on what we're becoming. It's based on the free grace of God. But it has a goal, a purpose, and that's transformation. Let's look at that again. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Oh, my knees knock when I read that. Beer. You know why? (laughs) I don't come anywhere close to walking like Jesus did. What does this verse mean? What means this? God's Spirit is in us. He's teaching us. He is progressively transforming our lives. We are growing up. Paul writes to Timothy. He says, Take, give close attention to your life and your teaching. By them, you will save both yourself and others, he says. Let everyone Be able to see your growth in these things. Let everyone be able to see your growth in these things. I wonder if someone looked at me and said, I've known you five years, Sam, and I I don't see any change. It would not be a good thing. Or worse, saying, you're regressing. (laughs) The more we grow in holiness, the more we realize our sin. And the less holy we may feel. Okay? In fact, that should be our, our experience. But the more holy we actually are. You say, oh, our holiness is imputed. Yes, that's one kind of holiness. Sanctification means holiness, and it's decisive and also progressive, and it's consummative. What? Yes, have been saved and being saved and will be saved. I have been made holy in Christ. Justification. God sees us as forgiven. And then the ongoing sanctification work that God works holiness in our lives because he wants the world to see a difference in us and consummate it because we shall be like him when we see him as he is.
That's the goal. That's the promise of God. Nothing less. Nothing less, believer. How are we going to do that? Um, recent articles report that the findings of surveys, you know, adultery, divorce, theft from employers, cheating on income tax returns, lying to escape consequences of choices made, uh, cheating, violating the rules intentionally on the athletic field in order to get an advantage, all were just as prevalent, sometimes more so, among those who claim to be religious as those who claim no religion at all, and even those who call themselves evangelicals, gospel people. But Jesus is our Lord and Captain, and he said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Paul said, uh, after he said, it's by grace you're saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. He goes on to say, for we're God's poema, that's the Greek word, his masterpiece, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus on two good works, which God has before ordained, he prepared them beforehand, that we should walk in them. We need to press on to know the Lord and to be conformed to his image. How, how can we do that? Well, the psalmist tells us, among other places, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way, that is, com uh, make our life, the way we live, conformity with God's word. It says, by taking heed thereto, according to thy word. That is, to, by, by applying the word of God to our lives. That's how. But you know, in the New Testament, someday I might do a series on this, if asked, but there's the one another's of the New Testament. The all alones in the Greek. The one anothering. And that's one of the ways that God has appointed that we grow in grace. That we don't just hole up with a Bible, and that's good, and we need to, but we also need to be in a relationship with an accountability partner or a small group with which we meet regularly, or a mentor, if you will. We each need that. We need to grow. We need to have someone challenge me as that friend challenged me as a midshipman. The Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend. That cut and it was good. Well, <clears throat> we have a confidence, a hope of eternal life. And we are called to transformation. May your life and mine ever more closely reflect the one who lives within us and whose name we bear. Because his truth in Christ leads us to godliness. And the one who called you is faithful. He's faithful. He'll do it. Scripture tells us so. Let's pray.